I've changed the title probably five, six times past couple of weeks. Not drastically. It was like this. Integrity and Transparency. That was the title. Integrity and Transparency in Leadership. And then a few days later, back to Integrity and Transparency. And then finally, I decided to just settle this. Here's why. It is primarily about leadership and Paul's ministry. But the message is so applicable and relatable to each Christ follower, each one of us. And it is a powerful example. And as I mentioned before, as a pastor, I'm deeply grateful for this series. Because 2 Corinthians has a special impact because Paul opens up his heart. The whole passage, I mean, the whole letter is about sharing his heart and ministry, why he does what he does, because he has to defend the criticism. What are the criticism? There are four main criticisms. You could, you know, listed many more, but I summarize in four. The first one is Paul is inferior to the super apostles with triumphalism. First Corinthian context, when he wrote the first Corinthians and, and when he planted the church for 18 months, and those times when he left, and those times were still the period of time of doubting Paul's apostleship. Is he really truly apostle? If he's really truly apostle, how come he's not receiving our financial support? Because he was a tent making for his uh, daily support and refused to receive it for their benefit. Um, and then many of those uh, rumors were there. And then as time passes by, Newcomers from all the way from Jerusalem who happen to have the letter of recommendation. This seems to be a group. The people who actually came from Jerusalem church, but Apostle Paul calls them false gospels, and then he, he names them. I probably, uh, Corinthians named them as well, super apostles. Why super apostles? They appear to be uh, very powerful externally and names all these connections. Uh, Peter, the apostle, uh, the, the chief of the twelve. And then he, they will mention all these benefits. Triumphalism is another word a more plain word for um, theological word, over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology, simply put, is a kingdom now belief. Kingdom now meaning the cons consuminate victories that are only available when final kingdom, when we get to heaven, when the whole kingdom of a kingdom of God finally come so on earth, we will experience those full victories, but they claim we can experience now. It is now. So when it comes to any kind of suffering, sickness, and any kind of uh, humility, those things are to be rejected by them. So they were domineering, they were controlling, but when, and if you see any kind of cult, the typical symptom of the leader has 
overpowering authority, domineering control. And it, it is sad. Paul, who were leading with humility and give them their own way to find faith, and he oftentimes withheld his apostolic authority. He didn't want to discipline them that way. But they basically says he's inferior to the super apostles. Because look at the sufferings that he's going through. Look at how weak he is in person. And that leads to second um, criticism. Paul's letters are sharp and strong, but in person he's unimpressive and weak, including his speech. He's a bad speaker. He's not a good speaker. Paul, the way that he approached ministry was in mutual respect, he will continually uh, stay away from that controlling, overpowering apostolic leadership. And Corinthian church, the majority of them took advantage of that. And they're basically saying, well, compared to so and so, Paul's letter is just really, really strong. But then when he shows up, it's probably about appearance as well. He's not much to look at. And the tradition tells us Paul is short. Paul literally means little, short, and balding. <coughs> and Paul chose not to use eloquence of speech, remember, to show the demonstration of Christian. Uh, Spirit's power. He intentionally chose that. And then they're saying, his speech is very, just compared to others, nothing. Well, by this time, I have these images of um, contemporary conferences pastors' conferences. And typically the people who grew, grew the church so fast with the incredible public uh, communication skills, uh, people who could talk and deliver the message like the TED Talk people or um, TV anchors. The many of them has a sense of humor late-night talk show, and the many young people who are entering to full-time ministry, when even seminary, will aspire to be that type of leader, a pastor. But in Paul's quality that we're going to talk look at in terms of integrity, in terms of his character. The sad reality is those things are rare these days. I, I would even venture to say if you look at typical Christian, including our church, do we have saltiness? Are we, are we radically, counterculturally different because the mark of Jesus Why is it that we constantly are obsessed about celebrating 
sharing gospel, sharing uh, testimony. As if so-and-so's public stance makes his testimony even more effective and more powerful. What it is, is actually what Paul is leaning to was trying to get rid of all that so that people can see the demonstration of spirit's power, not the human eloquence of power. And I remember one of my book mentors, John R.W. Stott. And you guys see me quoting him quite often, right? Um, One impression when I met him in person was his humility. He was 80-some-year-old in in Orange County. People lined up. I wanted to say thank you for shaping my theology. And he was very humble. And my brother, who's also uh, read through his thoughts books, and to find out, and actually he went all the way to England to, to meet him in person and, and told me later that his biography in his book skips when he, where he went to school. He went to Cambridge. I guess uh, from our standard is Harvard or Stanford or Yale, those type of school. Right? So I, when, when, I, when you and I hear Cambridge, it doesn't mean much, but people... I mean, you guys know, but Ivy League school people in the East Coast might know. So he intentionally skips that so people can see him without the worldly uh, intellectual standard and whatnot. Very admirable. He didn't do that in a flashy way. He's just not there. When he, my brother asked him directly, and he told him why. Criticism number three. Paul doesn't accept support like other, another apostles. This was an ongoing problem with apostleship. Is he really, truly apostle? Um, 1 Corinthians letter time, it was more question of the authenticity of his apostleship. By the newcomers came from super apostles and twisted and slandered Paul and it became, in Second Corinthians he mentions that 11, 7, 12, 16 basically, he's so crafty he has an ulterior motive to deceive you further in some way. Remember the beginning of the message, at the beginning of this series, one thing I told you that I could endure church problem, uh, hardship, and all different kinds of things, but one thing that is just unbearable in my ministry is this kind of misunderstanding. And if I'm not given to vindicate now that's just an excruciatingly painful thing for pastors to a point I thought about quitting so many times. It's not the church problem. It's not all kinds of the problems that we face as, as in ministry, but it is those internal uh, struggle. That's uh, Paul's going to defend throughout the letter as well. Finally, Criticism number four is he's unreliable and capricious, fickle in his travel plan. I put it in the fourth one because this begins as soon as his introduction is ending. He begins with defense about this change of traveling plan. First letter of Corinthians my first letter of Paul to Corinthians, uh, three years ago, we ended with this study. 
In chapter 16, verse 9 through, uh, 5 through 9, this was the original plan, traveling plan for, uh, of Paul. He writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So he was supposed to uh, come to a Corinth and through the Macedonia, and then the first letter was sent, first Corinthians was sent, and it wasn't effective. All the corrective solutions and advices, pastoral charge that he gave, and Timothy carried that letter. The first Corinthian, I mean, the Corinthian church didn't respond teachably, and they didn't act upon that in obedience. So finding that out, Paul decided to visit, which is called severe, painful visit. Painful visit, why? Because instead of correcting the problem, Paul made the whole situation find out it's worse. They were challenging him. And they were, uh, they, they were the leader. One of the leaders were opposing him so strongly he was humiliated and then the rest of the Corinthian church didn't do much. So he went away. And, and um, while he was in, in visiting them, he said, oh, I decided to do visit twice. Not just once, to give you second grace from God, or double grace. In other words, I love you so much, I want to benefit you. And he's going to talk about that in a minute. And instead of coming back, he went to Ephesus directly. Well, I thought he was, we thought he was going to come back. What, what's going on? He said yes and no. And he said this, and he does actually, in actuality, he does this. So he's unreliable, and he's fickle. He's wavering in his decisions and plans. So today, he begins with his defense on that. But notice actual reasons he doesn't give until verse 15. Verse 12 through 14, he opens up his heart. Before he gives reasons for changes, he says, this is my heart. This is why I do what I do. And I call it a four marks of integrity and transparency in Paul's leadership. Once again, as you read uh, listen to this and uh, read through the passage together with me. Would you think about yourself as four marks of integrity and transparency as a Christ follower? And if, if you want to uh, apply even further in your leadership at home, at work, in our church, in the world, that's applicable as well. The first mark is a self-check. Paul led his life and ministry by a clear conscience as a self-check for integrity before God. Verse 12, the first part. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. 
this conscience was very important to, to Paul. In many other uh, of his uh, letters to churches, and he will mention it, and even to encourage the church leaders beyond him, even appointing elders and overseers and pastors, he named this as a quality, qualification of a church leader. But he also mentions in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as, I, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers in night and day. First Timothy chapter 3, he mentions as a qualification of leader. Here, Second Timothy, he shares this is a, a rule I live by to keep a clear conscience. And this is utterly important for every single one of us. Because if we live externally rather than inside out transformation mode, cleaning up the outside, if you look like law-abiding citizen, if you look, look like a good Christian without any major, you know, body piercing and, and all the uh, tattoos are gone, let's say. What is there else? Or maybe you should to stop heavy drinking, stop doing any marijuana or, or even vast majority of evangelical circles, no smoking. Every cigar from time to time is okay. (laughs) But brothers and sisters, we need a self-check. We need to live before God before we ask for accountability with others, before we go into this gray area of looking for discernment and personal application. Are we living before God? Is my heart, is my conscience clear? Do I keep that as if it, life depends on that? It requires honest look inside. Our, our accountability is at first it begins with vertical relationship with God. Before anybody else, I need to live before God and say, Lord, my conscience is clear. Search me, O God, if there's anything, any wicked things displeases you. I'll take that and confess and surrender to you. It's by this time, there's always objection because it's sometimes what I feel about good, clear conscience might be different from what you feel. It's a subjectivity. The people who are doing certain things, questionable things, and say, I feel fine. My conscience is clear. It's doable. You know why? Because our ultimate judgment is not our conscience. It's before God. God will judge us, not our conscience. It is a mere self-check. In other words, our conscience can be hardened if we left, just leave it alone in sin, in pride, in subtle, thi- subtle things like that, self-sufficiency. 
we stop feeling the things that we ought to feel in our conscience. Dull conscience can deceive us. That's why duplicity can go on. How can you preach and live that kind of life? It's separate, you know, you know another duplicit life. Because of conscience has been dull. How can he, as a church leader, do how can he, she as a church leader do such and such thing? Because conscience can be numb. The numbness can deceive ourselves. But while we are living in this vital, spiritually vital community, the con- keeping a conscience is first accountability before God, even we become accountable to others. Paul did that. Second mark is higher standards. Paul led his life and ministry by higher standards of integrity, especially those toward those whom he shepherded, whom he pastors, in other words. Oh, this is very convicting and very necessary needed word of the day. The second part of beginning with verse 12. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and as we will boast of you. First Timothy 3.2, he actually mentions this higher standards not only for himself, for, for other spiritual leaders, church leaders, overseers, elders, and pastors. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The list goes on and on more. It begins with above reproach, which means there should be no possible ground or big questions. It may, may not be sin, but live above of reproach means keep a higher standard. The sad thing about today's world and then when I, when I think about pastors in general, including me, this sense of higher standard is minimized because of horizontal, man-centered way of thinking. You know what, what people say as a pastor? Pastors need, have needs too. Pastors have loneliness too. Yeah, of course, I amen, amen to that. Pastors feel some vulnerability too. Yes. All the more, pastors are attacked by the Satan evil one. All the more. If you bring him down, you could destroy the community. That's actually what's happening in America, in, in, in Asia right now. Look at what Paul is doing he willingly submitted himself for higher standard. It seems not fair, but this is a cost of leadership. And would you pray for me and pray for our elders that we will live, our life will be above reproach. Chapter 16, verse 13, he goes to that again. I decide not to do 
anything that discount my ministry before God. Yeah. That discount my ministry is giving up a lot of freedom there. As he says about a higher standards, at least this passage, he clarifies four specific things, what it means to have a higher standard. I live with simplicity. Yes, it means also financial, also too. But don't get me wrong. Poverty is not more spiritual. But tendency in Western churches, especially when you think about triumphalism, you know, triumphalism, today's typical example is health and wealth, prosperity, gospel. How do they live? In mansion, in so much of luxurious things. Because the mega church brings a lot of money. But who will choose to live with simplicity for Christ's sake? Is actually a higher standard. Godly sincerity. Sincerity is being truthful to yourself and to others also too. But when he mentions godly sincerity, his means Christ-like. His example, his model is Christ. Not by the earthly wisdom, popular, trendy wisdom, earthly men's wisdom, but by grace of God. And fourthly, supremely so towards you. He means simply, especially towards you. Why? Because he was the spiritual father to them. He planted the church. He founded the church. He was the pastor to them. To those whom he pastors and shepherded, his standard, higher standard, was so important. In this day and age that uh, it's so uh, skewed what it means to be a really good pastor. And I'm thankful for the passages like this. Clarification here. I do not rationalize my weaknesses in some things in leadership that I need to improve. Of course, I need to improve uh, preaching in the sermon. And, you know, oftentimes I tell myself, oh, we're going to keep it at this length of time. And then because you guys has been gracious, I went over, I just kept apologizing, and one of the leaders said, stop apologizing. So I don't apply apologize anymore, but my aim is that if I prepare and packed it well, I should be ending within the aim time, right? So I'm not I'm not excusing my uh, reasons for you know my own leadership development, but I, I, the idea of these principle. It's far more important. And I'm grateful for our elders, our home group leaders, who share the same spirit. And pray for them, because they are really under attack when you think about it. Number three, Mark, is openness and transparency. Paul led his life and ministry by open integrity 
and transparency reflecting God's faithful promises and character. Verse 15 sounds like um, he's, start, oh, he's about to give a little bit of reason, but he digressed. Why? Because he wants to open up his heart. Listen to his thought process. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, sure of what? Feeling supremely towards you that we someday will boast of each other that integrity and openness. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that I, you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you sent me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, one, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always Yes. For the, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, what Paul's doing here is that he opens up his heart and he shows his thought process. And because his thought process shares his conviction, where he's basing on his thought process and by which what kind of uh, decision he, whatever the kind of decision he makes, the foundation in God, God's character. The gospel is of Jesus Christ, if he is vacillating, if he's wish-washy and wa- wavering one way or the other, he's basically saying, I didn't preach that kind of gospel. Christ sent me and I am basing everything on what Christ has done. The promises of God is in Christ. It is always yes. That doesn't mean every time we pray that God will say the answer is yes. That will be prosperity gospel, triumphalism again. What he means by that is God always wants our best. And it's a yes, always. We don't say yes and no at the same time. So would you see my heart? He's saying, I wanted to give you, I changed my traveling plan because I wanted to benefit you twice instead of just once. And this painful visit happened, and there's a reason why. Verse 23, he shares again. I'm going to hold that up for now. So it is a vulnerable process to be open and transparent as a leader, but this openness was a deliberately loving way Paul ministers to people. As a matter of fact, in uh, chapter 6 of this letter, he writes, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restic- restricted by your own affliction. 
you stop opening up to us. Your emotion of affection and love for us stopped. In return, I speak as to children, Paul writes, widen your hearts also. This is a literal translation, but if we use our daily language, would you open your heart to me again? Have you, have you ever done this with your children? Wanting to be, okay, I'm going to choose my humble way and share my thought process and my failures in a very humble way and open, transparent way, expecting your children will say, thank you, Dad, I didn't know that. Oftentimes, in my true ulterior motive come out, when my sons respond to me, that's right. You, 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 are, you goofed off and you basically... So that's, that, that's, that's not what I planned. <laughs> I forgive you, Dad. I'm so more sorry. That was what I wanted to hear. Right? <laughs> All right, I messed up, son. I cannot take, take it back, but I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Fourth and last one, the mark of integrity and transparency in Paul's leadership, his ultimate motive and purpose is revealed in this. Paul led in his life and ministry by seeking others best in love as his ultimate motive and purpose. Verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you because the reason why I didn't come back. That I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy and your stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained. Okay, listen to this very carefully because he's not you know, I'll just masochistic, sadistic kind of way. I'll just beat me up. Who cares kind of thing. He's basically saying if I pain you I need, I need encouragement and comfort when I come. But the one who's supposed to encourage me is in pain and discouragement. What kind of encouragement would I get? That's, that's what he's saying. Win-win situation that he's praying for. Verse 3. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. In other words, instead of coming back, he wrote letters with tears. It's called as a tearful letter or severe letter, and to which they repented. And the change of heart. And he's writing this letter, Second Corinthians, as a response to that. Do you see this? Paul, as he reveals, my real reason is to spare you. To spare you from what? He knew that if he comes back, he had to come hard. Clash will be there with apostolic authority because gospel is a stake. But what it means is that as he was doing that, it will cause a pain on their relationship. 
it will be damaging their relationship. Paul didn't want that. So he chose to write. And it was trembling, waiting time. He couldn't wait until he finds out. Instead of meeting Troas, Titus at Troas, he decided to go all the way to Macedonia to find the results of the letter earlier from Titus. And he was joyful. Such joy came to him when he had received the good news. The question that I'm asking is, is that ultimate, ultimate motive that we do, why we do? Is it our ultimate motive when we resolve conflict? Or is that to prove that I am on the right? Or is that in immediately just to make things normal. Is it our ultimate purpose? Without ulterior motive, do we see the purpose is to seek others best? Is that how you approach your, your woman's group, your home group, your men's group? People of God, the community that we belong to is a supernatural community, not because we are supernatural, but because the head of the church is our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit resign, resides within us. We ought to follow that radical principle of seeking others' best. Love must be our ultimate motive and ultimate purpose. Not self-protection, not self-preservation. Not the rightness of our opinion. Then, only then, the world will see that we are disciples of Christ. That we belong to our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. Going back to verse 13 and 14. Hear that again. For we are not here writing to you anything other than what you have, what you read and understand. I hope you will fully understand just as you partially understand us. On that day, our Lord Jesus, you will prove to be wrong, and I will prove to be right. No. Fleshly desires exactly that, right? He goes for win-win. Loving relationship is that. Not enabling relationship. You win, I lose. Uh, no dominating relationship. You lose, I win. Loving relationship is you win and I win. I long for the day we will boast of each other before our Lord Jesus. I conclude with this quote from Warren Wearsby. A poignant word, once again, not just for the leaders, but every Christ follower. Weirs be right. We must be careful to protect our own personal integrity. When integrity goes, then character starts to decay. When character goes, we've lost everything important. No matter what you may have possessed, money, Popularity, talent, friends. If you don't have character, you don't have anything. But character depends on integrity. People with integrity are people who are honest with themselves, with others, and with God. They don't wear wet masks. And they don't waste energy pretending to be what they, are, they aren't. They aren't 
They are not afraid of what others may find out about them because they have nothing to hide. The alternative to integrity is hypocrisy. And that eventually leads to duplicity, becoming two persons inside, neither of whom knows the other. Without inner wholeness, we can't function successfully in life or enjoy all that God wants us to enjoy. We must cultivate integrity. That means knowing God, God's forgiveness, God's truth, God's church, and God's love. Wow. That was powerful. Do you see the relationship between integrity and transparency? I love the way that Warren Rears points out they're not afraid about what others might, may find out about them because they have nothing to hide. Because a whole, in a wholeness, in integrity, openness and transparency doesn't threaten the person. My prayer for each one of us, whether you are some leader in church or outside of church, that you will live with a higher standard. Submit willingly and joyfully to live above approach for every single one of us as a Christ follower. Let's live with these four marks that we will stay salty and bright as the light of the world. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this timely word uh, for me as well as for my brothers and sisters here. Have mercy on us in our failures to keep the integrity and to live with uh, openness and transparency. To seek love as our ultimate motive and purpose. Oh, but I so desire to see that among us. Like a cold winter ends and and spring comes with flowers and newness of life. We pray for that kind of quiet cultivation of integrity and transparency among us. In so doing, may you be glorified in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.